Let's read, if you will. Well, you know what? Let's back up to 23 of the previous chapter like we did last week. Now when He, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, truly, truly, if you will, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How could these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. 
But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. That's the word of the living God. And you'll remember from last week that the reason we dip back into chapter 3 is that the way this narrative is flowing, it seems that one of those who believed um, because of the signs, among those who believed on the signs, but Jesus didn't commit Himself to them. You remember we made the observation last week that believed and commit in those two verses are the same word. So we could just as well say that many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. He did not believe. He discerned and knew that their belief was not saving faith. Just an acknowledgement that this must be a teacher from God because these are works that God could only do. And because Jesus knew all men and reads us like a book, He knew that these people did not have saving faith. And we'll talk about that a little bit, Lord willing. He didn't need anybody to tell Him about their own condition. They don't even understand their own condition themselves because He knows what's in man. And so one of those, we believe, probably, in verse 3, was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And we went into it last week, the kind of man, what we can know from the Scriptures of the kind of man Nicodemus was. And we know that because he was a Pharisee, and we know a lot about um, the Pharisees in the Scriptures, highly religious, highly moral, um, and um, also that he was a ruler of the Jews, was part of the Sanhedrin, which were 70 men, most of whom were Pharisees, not all, but most, who basically ruled over the religious affairs of the nation and anyone else throughout the area or kingdom or empire that was named a Jew. They had that kind of authority. They didn't have civic or civil authority because that was uh, vested in Rome because they were under Roman rule. But they were just under that. So this was a prominent man who was very well educated and, tradition has it, was the third richest man in Jerusalem. So he was wealthy, uh, with physical, with wealthy, rich, with uh, worldly riches. And certainly in his own mind, he would have been rich in faith. He would have been rich in good works. He would have been rich in um, adherence to the law and all the things that they layered on top of it. Um, to... Uh, they came from men, tradition of men. He was a part of that. He was a part of making the rules, and certainly he was one who felt like he faithfully kept them. He was full of religious pride, as were his others. But the fact that there's a break in his pride is manifest by the fact that he would come to Jesus. And many comments have been made and speculation about why he came at night. And I guess it's not helpful to speculate, but... It does seem like that he came by the cover of night in order to kind of... He's a cautious man. So he's not ready to fully commit. But you'll see a progression, and we'll talk about it later, where he went from this to coming to Jesus at night to in John chapter 7 defending Jesus um, for charges that were being brought in front of him 
to the uh, 19th chapter of John where he and Joseph of Arimathea work together to prepare the Christ's body for burial. So you go. he comes from night to expose a little bit of himself to his colleagues, his peers, to doing something that put his life at great risk um, in helping to prepare the body of Jesus. So something's going on with him. Um, but the fact that he's here having this conversation one-on-one, it certainly would indicate that this is after everything is settled and he wants to have one-on-one time with Jesus and have a substantive conversation with him. But I really believe in my heart of hearts because of what wound up happening to him uh, and what we can learn and know from some of the progression and some of the traditions that are handed down about him later on that we'll get into later. That he's coming to Jesus because his religious system that promised hope has failed him. And that he's got a guilty conscience and he doesn't know what to do with it. We made the point last week that an able theologian of old coined this or wrote this phrase that a guilty conscience is the mother of all heresy. And if you think about that comment long enough, that's entirely true. So every religious system other than Christianity is some man-made, demon-influenced way to appease a guilty conscience. So this guy's conscience is gnawing at him. He's like the Apostle Paul. And we went and looked at it before Paul was converted. He gave his credentials, you remember, in the book of Philippians. And all the things that he used to trust in to make him righteous were now rubbish, cow dung to him. Well, Nicodemus is not at that point, but he seems to be edging there. And Jesus just cuts right to the chase. And in essence, when he addresses... Um, Nicodemus in, in verse three, he's not addressing what Jesus, what Nicodemus said to him, but he was addressing what Nicodemus was thinking, and he just cut right to the issue. Nicodemus, you're standing here, and maybe you expected me to say you're close to the kingdom of God. You know, you're seventy five percent there, and here are the other things that you need to do. To make up the 25%. Matter of fact, you're a leader and you're a teacher in Israel. You're a recognized authority. You're 99% there. It's just that one thing. If you'll just do this one thing, and that's what he was listening for. Because he called him a teacher. And Jesus was not a teacher come from God. Jesus was God come to teach. And Basically, you get the sense of what he's saying to him is this. I just lack some information. And if you give me just enough, um, I can be as close to God as you are. Because apparently you must be from God because you can do all these things and none of us can do them. And so, Jesus reads his heart like he does all of our hearts like a book. And so last week we developed that issue about condemnation. He's under condemnation. And if ever a man appeared to have brought something to Jesus that would that would be um, redemptive and would be 
acceptable, it would be this man. And Jesus turns around to him and says, everything that you hope for and everything that you bring to this conversation is of no value. So we said, we're going to outline this, condemnation, Christ, cross, and crown. So he's under condemnation because he's in disbelief. And we know of his disbelief because of the previous verses in 23 and 24 and also the fact that he would address Jesus as rabbi. You know, we live in a time where you can frame things in different ways. There was a political leader who once wrote a book, a little children's book called It Takes a Village. And the point was is if we come together collectively as a village in education and um, social endeavors and and all the things that we can do together, we can make um, society better. We can we can achieve what we long for, uh, and uh, and that's an orderly, peaceful society where people get along and they're safe and all of that. And so that's human understanding, and uh, it takes it takes. Some would say even. In Catholic doctrine, it takes a church. You know, the uh, the word Catholic means universal, and they're saying that if you're a member of the Catholic Church, you're in. It doesn't matter if you have any understanding about this issue about born again or anything like that. Just jump through these hoops and just get in. And once you're in the church, and you could be in the church but not be in Christ. So it doesn't take a church. The philosopher could say, well, it just takes a new way of thinking about things, a new paradigm shift in the way that we think to improve our lives. And the humanist would say that. It takes strength and resolve or or it takes medication, some would say, or it takes uh, just a little bit of tweak here, a little bit of tweak there. But here's what we know about Christianity, and Christianity stands alone in this, and that is this. It takes a new birth. It takes a regeneration. It takes throwing away and discarding and renouncing everything that we bring when Christ comes to us and just confessing it's utterly bankrupt, utterly useless and not acceptable to Him. You see, if a person doesn't understand, listen carefully to this, if the person does not understand the necessity of the new birth, It is because they have failed to understand the holiness of God and the real nature of man in his sinful condition. Because once we press into those truths and we see God as best we can see Him as He's revealed in Scripture as being holy and separate from sin, once we get a vision of that, the only thing that we see about ourselves like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 was His sin. And He called for His own destruction and Pour out your wrath on me. That's what repentant people do. I deserve nothing from you except what you say I deserve because I'm not right with you. We see God holy. Then we see ourselves unholy. And we see that the gap between the two has no human bridge. There's a gap, a gulf, the way that Christ told about it when He said the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man goes to hell. Lazarus goes to heaven. He said there's a gulf. 
that's fixed between us. And if you want to go from there to here or here to there, you can't do it. That illustrates that gulf, that expanse that was created the day we sinned and rebelled against God. And that contagion spread throughout the whole human race. It doesn't take a village. It doesn't take a church. Some would say it takes a family. You know, we just get a wholesome family. Just get a mom, dad who stick around, don't get divorced. Those are wonderful things. Or that we don't have those kind of things and we can kind of just improve upon the situation. It takes those things. But here's the truth it takes a Savior. That's what it takes. It doesn't take political change. I'm afraid that in our society right now, because of the way things are going with evangelical Christians, it, it seems like the trend right now is to put their hope and hold out all hope in which way the government goes. It's right here. It's right here. And it takes some doings to change this. It takes to die. It takes death to that and to go through the spiritual birth canal of Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection and be raised to brand new life. So Jesus was not just a teacher. He just said, you know what? If I could just... You know what? If I just... I just if, if It's not that we... Uh, we, we lack information. <laughs> and I'm here representing... He said we... So that could have been he could have been saying that just to kind of um, appease his pride, like there are others like me, and I'm just a spokesman. Or he could have been the spokesman. Who cares? But he does come and say, if you'll just settle it, because obviously uh, we just don't know enough. And this the problem is not that we don't know enough. The problem is because of who we are, and there's nothing that we can do about that. And that's why this beautiful analogy is used by Jesus of birth. He's saying to us, among other things, what we already know. And that is that we have as much to do with being born again as a Christian and a second birth as we had to do with our first birth. Now, what did we have to do with our first birth? Nothing. We didn't get to pick our parents. The time frame we were born, we picked none of that. We just came out. And he said, you know what? You've got to be born again the same way. It's the work of God to do this. This is not the work of man. Nicodemus, your religious system has failed you and it will continue to fail you. By the way, when he says born again, that has three different tiers of meaning, that word. And I think in this text, the way it's used, it encompasses all three. It, it does mean a second time. It means let's do that again. Like, let's repeat that. And it could also mean something radically different. Not to repeat something that was done, but for something to happen that's never been done, that's similar maybe to that which was done. So not a repeat necessarily. Something radically new that is pictured in something that was familiar. And then the third one. It means from above. From above. The Bible says, Whatsoever is born of God 
overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Look at John chapter 1, verse 22. You know, I mean, uh, um, I'm sorry, 12. Just fan back over for a minute. We're near there. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It needs to be born of God. And there are parents involved. And we'll get to that in a minute. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says, We were born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. It's born again. Isn't that amazing? Have you, can you, have you ever been tempted uh, to... I mean, you think about this, and we've thought about this in different areas. If I just had it to do over again, if I knew then what I know now, and we have those thoughts... And I thought that a billion times. There was something that really a pinnacle moment in ministry that happened several years back. And I have just about harassed myself to death of saying, if I could just live that over again. If I could just live that over again. That is not the answer. If I'd have done it right, it wouldn't have mattered. I need to be born again. And I was born again. If you're a Christian, you were born again too. That's the answer. The answer is not in us. We're a bunch of naval watchers. We are so introspective. And we look inside 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 and we look inside. It's been said before that the psychologist goes back to childhood. But the Bible goes back to Adam. The problem is far deeper than that. We come out of the womb the first time. We're evil to the core. David said, I was conceived in my mother's womb in iniquity. I do what I do as a, as a, as a, in Adam because I am who I am. That's always true. Starts with who we are and then who we are is manifest in what we do. It takes a Savior. It takes the new birth. Now, under, he's got, he's got, he's, he's hearing good news. He's hearing really good news. He's not excluding him from the kingdom. He's just telling him that everything that you carried to this conversation you thought and were trusting in is of that much value in getting to the kingdom. And for those of you who are listening, it's zero. It's zero. There is no value in it whatsoever. And isn't that the essence of repentance? Bankruptcy? I got nothing. I've got nothing to offer you. I've got nothing to give. I have. I bring nothing to the table. If I have any hope, it's in you. And because it's birth, it is a work of God and not man. Most assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. You can't see the kingdom. And then he goes on when he says, and you must be born again or you can't enter it. You can't even see it, much less enter it. You can't discern spiritual truth about the kingdom. You don't even aware of its existence, much less watch it active. 
You're numb and spiritually blind to all of this. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2. And God has made us alive. You can no more discern spiritual truth than to ask a corpse and put a novel in front of it and say, read a couple of pages for me. It's just not going to happen. We don't need renewal. Isn't it amazing how sometimes even as Christians we can fall into the trap of thinking that Christianity is about self-improvement? Self-improvement? It's self-abandonment. It is self-replacement. It is death to self and being alive to Christ. Practically speaking, I'm, I'm always, always cautious about saying this. Not positionally, but practically speaking, the new birth does not alter the flesh. Positionally, it kills it. Practically, there's still indwelling sin that we can yield to if we choose to, or we can choose righteousness. We're no longer a slave to it. But friends, the new birth didn't improve it. It didn't improve it. This shreds the notion that the only testimonies we were to pay attention to are the ones that are dramatic. Where do we get that from? We get that from the fact that it's a glorious thing to see someone who's lived a really obviously trashed life to get saved and then abruptly make a change like that. That's, that attracts our attention. And it's good that it does. But it speaks of how little we understand our desperate situation and the holiness of God that we would put so much weight on them. Because I'm here to tell you, Nicodemus was in need of new birth as badly as Barabbas was later on. And Barabbas is as bad as he is. I'm going to tell you something right now. We grade on the curve. God does it. God doesn't look at it and go, hmm, okay, we've got this. Okay, you got that. The flesh profits nothing. Nothing. But it is true that if there is no change, there is no new birth. There is no such thing as a new birth without change. I'm sorry. It's just, it stands to even reason to know that. And he goes on to speak about the wind. And that's the whole point. And using the birth and the wind, when he uses the wind, he's saying, and we'll get there, Lord willing, but just preview of coming attractions, he said, you know, this is like the wind. The work of the Holy Spirit to bring somebody into the kingdom, empowered by the Word, is like the work of the wind. You cannot control the wind. As much as we can do and as much as we've learned, we cannot control the wind. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's blowing. We know nothing. The only thing we know is that we can see the evidence of the wind. And that's the whole point. When you're born again of the Spirit of God, I don't. we might not know it the exact millisecond it happened. And we, it's, it's, we, there are a lot of things that are mysterious about it that we don't know. And the movement of the Spirit, how somebody can move in on somebody. I'll never forget it. That we had a lady one time, and I sound I don't want to sound mystical or anything like that, but we had a lady who emailed the church. I've still got the email. 
And she said, I'm interested in Christian truth. Would you send somebody to come talk to us? And we're Muslim. And I want you to, I wanted wondering if somebody could come and explain to us Christianity. Well, I got that email. And I went, ah, you know, I was giddy. And so we showed up at her house and they were going to get a meal somewhere. And they said, it'd be better if you come back next Tuesday. I said, we'll come back next Tuesday. And so we're sitting there in the living room. I well remember this. Her name was Katie. And she had her Muslim uh, husband over there sitting there on the couch. And he looked at us like he could kill us. But he let her hear the gospel. And I'm here to tell you, she was going, she was struggling, she was struggling. And all of a sudden, I'm telling you, it was like a wind blew over that living room. And she went, I'm ready. I went, what? She said, I'm ready. I said, for what? I'm ready to get saved. And she prayed to see Christ and had a life that changed to show it. And we baptized her not long after that. Her husband's still sitting there in disbelief. It was like the Holy Spirit, the wind of the Holy Spirit that nobody could predict. What just flooded that living room. Honestly, I'm telling you. I know that it doesn't always happen like that, but it did that time. We couldn't predict that. We didn't have anything to do with it. We were just sharing the Word. And God took the Word and the Spirit and transformed that woman's life just like He's done for me. And we couldn't predict it. We couldn't control it. But I tell you one thing. We saw the evidence of it. Because our life turned around just like that. And she remained faithful to her Christian profession even though her husband fought her tooth and nail and finally left her over it. This transformation somebody's born again. Do you realize? It means a spiritually dead person is now implanted with the very life of Jesus Christ. How in the world could somebody be the same and experience that? No way. No way. No way. Hey, the change is instantaneous, but it's also over time. Sometimes it's more abrupt. Sometimes it's more pronounced. I have four children. I watched every one of them come out of the womb and they came out different ways. Andrew had the umbilical cord around his neck and we almost lost him. And they came out kicking and screaming. Some of them came out silent. Some of them, I won't name names, but they came out different ways. But they all came through that same birth canal and I watched it happen. And that's the way it is when you're born again. We've got to be careful that we don't put people in patterns that it's got to be just like somebody else's experience. But here's the one thing that's common. Change. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Brand new! Not improvement! I said in the Roman study sometimes, I said, you know what? My grandfather used to drive the most ratchety, Sorry cars. And he would drive across the United States. He didn't care. And I said, this being in Adam is like my grandfather's car. It was like a Ford Falcon. That's what they called them, Ford Falcons. They'd be a big white steering wheel. It'd take three people to turn it because it didn't have power steering. I can remember hearing him grab it and turning that. I can remember that. It never seldom cranked, but when it did, we just, you know. Anyhow, so I said, it's like having that car in Adam. And then Jesus gives you a, Ford, a Ferrari. And in in chapter 5 and following, He opens up the hood of both of them and says, okay, that's what you had there, and this is what you got now. You don't think what this baby will do. He didn't fix up the falcon. 
They gave me a brand new car. Brand new life. If you're a believer, that ought to encourage you because Jesus will never expect anything of you that He had already empowered you to do and be. Because of who you are. Nothing need bind us anymore. We are not a slave to sin anymore. We are slaves to righteousness. How often do we think of us like that? We often think, I'm just a slave to sin. Well, the only problem, that's the Bible. If you're saved, you are a slave to righteousness. I'm enslaved to doing right. It's foreign for me to do wrong because of who lives in me now. And the devil comes along and says, well, you don't want to get thinking like that. You'll get arrogant. Arrogance, that produces abject, pure humility. Because I know I don't have anything to do with that. My appetites have changed. My desires have changed. My longings have changed. My expectations have changed. It's changed everything. He's changing everything. And it's still changing. There's room for more. And I want it more. Come on! Let's do it! And that's what He wants to do. And that's what He is doing if you're a believer. <coughs> Regeneration. We have to understand it as not an improvement of the old, but death to the old and the introduction of brand new. That's the new birth. It's not to tweak things. We've got nothing that can be tweaked. It's all messed up. He says, I can't do it. He says to me, the answer's not in you. Quit looking to you. And then he goes on to say, everybody that looks to me gets saved. Just like Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness and looked to me to get saved. I looked to him to get saved. I looked to him to get sanctified. And I looked to him as my anchor for hope and hope of future glory. It's all of that. Man, what a great God. So, the Greeks have this word. And it's, uh, uh, it's that long. And it's used two times in the New Testament to speak of this new gener- this regeneration. This, this brand new thing that happens. Now, it's spoken of on a personal level. I want you to follow me now. I've got two subheadings and we'll be finished. We've got the condemnation. That's why He came. That's why God's drawing Him. He's condemned. He's got a guilty conscience. He doesn't know what to do with it. Judaism's failed Him. Okay? He isn't a Christian yet, but He looks at Christ and everything hinges on who He's standing there and who He understands He's talking to. You remember the rich young ruler? called him good teacher. Remember Jesus said, no one's good but God. He said, how do I? He comes to him with similar questions. Said the same thing. Teacher, teacher. I want you to look at Titus chapter 3. On a personal level, Paul speaks of it. Now, this, this word is used by Paul and it's used by Jesus. But same thing because Jesus is writing through Paul. But, <clears throat> this is so cool. I love the buts in the Bible. You know, when that but, there's certain strategic places where the but is put in. You know, but. It was like this, but. Now, this is one of them. Verse 4 of chapter 3 of Titus. But, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us 
through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This long Greek word that's used two times here by Paul and and earlier by Jesus is the word from which is translated regeneration. There's a regeneration. He's saying there's a new birth. He washed me and made me clean. The Holy Spirit can't occupy an unclean vessel. So when He comes, He simultaneously cleanses us and then occupies us. And we're brand new. We're brought to life. Not an improvement of the old, but a brand new model. A new creation. Hallelujah. In Jesus. Then that's individually. But then Jesus uses it in Matthew chapter 19. Let's look at it. In Matthew chapter 19, same word from which regeneration is translated two times only in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, that in the the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Stay with me now. Watch this. Watch this now. Okay, here's what He's saying. On the individual level, when you get saved, you get born into a kingdom. And that kingdom exists right now. It's operative right now. We're members of it in this room right now. And there's operations going on in that kingdom to strengthen the ones who are already a part of it and to woo the people who are not yet. And God's building His church and He's doing all of these things. It's that unseen kingdom that you and I can see now because we have the spiritual eyes. Not to see everything that's going on with it, but to see much of it. And to certainly see more than we could ever see before. Spiritual truth and understanding and discerning. Being lit up and illuminated by the Spirit through God's Word. Individually happens. And what's that called? Covenant language. Which covenant is that? That's the fulfillment of which one? New. It's a new covenant. Where Jesus says, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to put all of this on your heart. I'm going to come inside you. And then Jesus is speaking of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant when His kingdom comes down on earth. And He said, in that regeneration, same word, in that regeneration. Now listen, here's how we can understand this. Don't y'all love, aren't you kind of, don't you enjoy uh, the imaginations that people have put into stories about time travel? It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, you know, you know how people will make up some time travel event. I know that we've got a um, we've got a, a movie um, at home, and maybe, may, I can't remember the name of it, but it's talking about liberal theology, and that years ago there was a, 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 a the setting is a seminary where they started letting in liberal theology. And somebody called him on the carpet about it and said, we've got to stop this. And one of the guys who was kind of trying to appease some of the guys who wanted to get off base, he went through a time travel machine. And he got to go from that time in the 1800s to where we live now. And the first scene, I think, of when he travels into the future is him running out of a movie theater and going, I can't believe it! And what he saw and heard in there in that movie theater, he said, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. And he looked around at the society and I said, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. 
And they tied it back to the fact that this is what it means. This is what happens when you compromise God's Word. He got to go forward in time and see what the consequences were. And here's what happens when you're born again. But it's completely opposite. When you're born again, it's time travel in reverse. And so everything that's going to happen in the kingdom and all the glory of the kingdom and the forgiveness and the love and the mercy and the justice and the kindness and the peace, all of that that Jesus is speaking of in the regeneration, the moment that you're born again, it comes from there to you. And it lives inside you. So around me, the world can collapse. But if I'm a spirit-filled, spirit-led Christian, it does not affect me one iota. Why? Because it's time travel in reverse. The moment that you get saved, the kingdom that's promised, and it's going to be a literal kingdom, now comes to inside you. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means. You can't understand the Beatitudes until you understand this. The Beatitudes are predicated upon kingdom behavior. And what it's saying is this. You can only act like this when Christ lives inside you and reigns inside you. And when He does, you will act like this. And society will not look like this until the kingdom comes. But in the meantime, you'll look like this. That's what you will look like. Let's get this. There's only one person who ever walked the face of this earth that God reigned in. One person. Jesus. That's it. That's it. So the kingdom is Jesus. And so He personified it. He said, you're looking at the kingdom right now. You're you're staring at Him. You won't change? You want to be born again? You're looking at Him. And he goes on to say it. When I'm put up on the cross like that curse, that, that snake was put up on the cross, all you got to do is look to me and I'll put you in the kingdom because I'll come inside you. And you will live bound by your sin no more. You'll be free of all guilt and all shame and you justified in my sight simply for looking to me. The only one in whom God reigned on this earth. Me. And my only hope of Jesus reigning in me is Jesus living in me. It's not some detached thing where I try to act like Him. I'm indwelt by Him. And you are too. And now we're free from everything that bound us. Time travel in reverse. See, this guy said, teacher, at this point in his life, the rich young ruler, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? The thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Bible says that it is only possible to say that Jesus is Lord through the Holy Spirit. Did you know it says that? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. You can only say, by the Holy Spirit, call Jesus Lord. Now that just means, certainly a lost person can say Jesus is Lord. It just simply means that say it and mean it. That's what it means. Say it sincerely is what that means. So, we have time travel in reverse. 
the moment I got saved, the kingdom that's coming out in the future, the moment I got saved, traveled back in time, travels back in time, and is now in me. Now, look at Luke chapter 17, verse 21. Jesus said it Himself. Look at Luke 17, 21. Now, let's go up to 20. Verse 20. Luke 17, 20. Now when He, Jesus, was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them and said, The kingdom does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is what? Is within you. See, that's why when we went over the covenants, you remember that? When we went through Obadiah and it says we lifted it from they shall possess their possessions and we said there are three covenants that anchor this. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And we made the point that until the new covenant is fulfilled, neither one of those others can be. Because in order to have a kingdom over which Christ reigns, you've got to have converted hearts. Because that's the whole issue, isn't it? We resist Him. Tooth and nail before we get saved. It's only people who are saved that can submit to Him. So that's the Davidic kingdom. And peace in the Middle East, where all those nations come to that crown nation, Israel, and affirm that this is their land because it belongs to God and He gave it to them, is only going to be when these nations are converted. They don't do it now. Look at today's paper. There's no capacity for them to do it now. Because of the new birth. Praise God for the new birth. See, without the kingdom of God, without being born again, Nicodemus could neither envision nor enter the kingdom of God. And neither could anyone else. And this one, I think of transformation. That out there, the moment I get saved, comes in here. I'm waiting for the kingdom, but yet I'm not waiting for it because it's in here. You read the Beatitudes in a different way when you realize that. It ain't got anything to do with around you. It's got to do with in you. You can live like this because the Christ who called you to now lives in you. Now. Not later on. Now. When did it happen? When you got born again. Who birthed you? Jesus. think about. It's, it's really telling and it's a blessing to just have living illustrations here of these new mothers. we got Kelly and Alex in here with us today. And I was I was a privilege. It's different when it's your own. But I'm, I'm kind of a squeamish guy. And, I was, and when we had our first one, I was like, I don't know if I can... I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not being funny. I'm afraid I'd pass out or something. And I got in there and I'm cutting the umbilical cord and I'm engaged and I'm like, you know, it's like no big, I mean, it's a big deal to Jill, but I'm saying it's like, I'm not, this is my wife, this is my youngin, you know, that kind of thing, South Georgia for child. And I said, I'm in the middle of all this, I can't believe it. And the blood and all that's not bothering me one bit. It was beautiful to me. And so we're in there and they're coming out, you know. And I saw all four of them, privileged to see all four of them come out. And here's what I know they came forth. Through the suffering of their mother. 
I felt so bad for my wife. I would never defile her suffering by sitting there saying, you know, no big deal. Hey, remember the nursery? It's pink. We got it all written. You just, you just keep your mouth shut. You're better off just not say anything. And that's true. You don't try to identify with that. No, you don't. Did you know it speaks of Jesus saving us the same way it speaks of a woman in labor? Hundreds of years before He came. Did you know it says that? That's one of the reasons why the Bible says you're saved in childbirth. Because to birth a child is an illustration and a testimony of the new birth. We came through the birth, the spiritual birth canal of Jesus Christ when He was born again. And it was through His suffering that we came. Just like the mother suffered. You know, you know how this is in cultures all over the world. And many times, matter of fact, there was a pastor that lived in uh, Jonesboro several years back. Had a tremendous testimony. Still pastors up here in Cobb County. And the doctor came in and said, we're down to this. We either save your wife or your baby. He said, well, if it's down to that, I mean, you, I can't... He said, save my wife. Save my wife. And he went in there and said... Came out long, not long after that and said, we've lost both of them. I record. We lost both of them. Many, many wives perish in childbearing. They're suffering and pain involved with it. And it illustrates what Jesus did. But look what it says in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is one of the most precious chapters in the Bible. And can I say this to you? It is very clear, it is very clear in Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus that Jesus, because of His knowledge of the Old Testament, expected Him to know this. It wasn't like, I'm throwing something new on you here and I'm kind of talking in language as if it's old, but it's really new. He said, you're the teacher? You're, you're the main kahuna. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't know this. That'd be like talking to a pastor. I remember one time we were in a pastor's home and we were, and, 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 and we, we thought this guy's a pastor and his son was there and we were visiting because of his son. And the guy that was with me said, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? He said, I don't know. He said, well, if you stand before God, what would you say to him? He said, I don't know. And the pastor looked over and my friend looked over at the pastor and said, what would you say? And he said, I don't know. What would you say? And I'm sitting there thinking, you're a pastor and you don't know the answer to that question? And so he sat there and listened to us share the gospel and didn't know it himself. That's like this guy. You're supposed to know this. Jesus expected him to know it. But look what it says. Verse 11. This is speaking of Jesus, you know. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for she shall bear their iniquities. Now, in the ESV, ESV, it says anguish of his soul. In the NIV, it says he shall see the light of life. In other words, through his offering, he's going to bring life by giving his. In the New American Standard, it says the anguish of his soul. And that word means heavy, wearisome labor. I like the way King James says it simply because I'm used to hearing it all these years. He shall receive the travail of his soul. Just like a mother when she goes into labor and she's got that baby and he's coming out or he, she's coming out. She gets to see 
the blessing of God coming forth from her suffering. And then almost immediately, she forgets it. It's true, isn't it? And there's joy and rejoicing. I remember looking at my wife thinking, boy, you recovered from that real quick. We went from death to life in a hurry. And it just shows and illustrates the truth of John chapter 16, verse 21. Look at it. The Gospel of John chapter 16, verse 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. What does that sound like? When Jesus spoke of His hour, what was He speaking of? He sent it to His mother, didn't He? When He turned the water into wine. He said, what do I got to do with this? My hour has not yet come. Then when He's in the Gethsemane, my hour has come. The hour has come. My hour. Birth. Through my death, there will be birth. Her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. I hope you see Hebrews chapter 12 differently than in a fresh way today. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Remember, the woman's in labor. He said, this is bad. This is difficult. This is horrible. Help me. Give me some relief, please. In a hurry. Never experienced any kind of pain like this before. Then the baby comes out. And everything is like, wow, praise the Lord. It's like it never happened. And there's joy. And those of you who've had children, those of you who've been around, husbands have seen children had, and those of you who hadn't yet experienced that, take my word for it. It's exactly what winds up happening. That's a picture of Jesus. Look what it says. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily snares us. And let us run with endurance the races set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. What now? Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God. He said, he looked and he went through that travail because he knew just on the other side of it he was going to bring Nancy into the kingdom. My death means her birth. And same is true for any of you in here, all of us in here who are saved. And that joy was set before him. And so he's not just looking at the cross. He's looking at the cross, but he's looking on the other side of it. Can I get as practical as we can get this morning? You're going through a cross right now. You're in the middle of one or you're headed for one. Remember the joy that's set before you. It doesn't mean that your suffering is redemptive because only Christ's suffering is redemptive, but it sure is reflective. When the people in China go out on the streets in the middle of the coronavirus and they're Christians and they're wearing these yellow suits and they're handing out masks and handing out aid and help to the people, they say that the policeman who would normally question them and may even write up some kind of report being suspicious about what they're up to or now coming up to them and asking for masks and then go back again and ask for another one and go hand it to another one and they're seeing Christians because why? Why would they do that? Because the Jesus who went through suffering for the joy that was set before Him lives inside them. That's why. You see why we look at that with such wonder and awe and gratitude? Do you see it? Not the cross. 
but who laid down there. There is joy set before you. There's joy set before me. Despise the shame. Think nothing of it. doesn't mean that God's not sympathetic toward it. But it does mean that He has an objective on the other side of it. It's redemptive. It reflects the redemption of His suffering Son. And it changes you and I into further conformity to Him. How many crosses do you think we try to get up off of and escape before God's finished with us? We squirm around. If you're not careful, well many people come up beside you and say, get up off this table. Enough's enough. And I don't care how well-meaning they are. And they can be well-meaning. But listen to the Lord. That's the work of the cross for you. And it's the work of the cross in you. Because on the other side of it. Who are the parents? (laughs) We'll get into this a little bit more. The Spirit of God and the Word of God come together to produce the child of God, the Son of God. We're sons of God and daughters of God through Jesus. So, we go through the spiritual birth canal of Jesus Christ. Somebody says, when were you saved? You could could say, I was saved 2,000 years ago. What? I saved 2,000 years ago. Because when He died, I died. (laughs) When He was buried, I was buried. And when He was raised, I was raised. I went through His spiritual birth canal and I came out and He cleansed me and nurtured me and brought me to Himself. And we haven't been separated since. And we never will. He's going to get the reward of His travail. If you're a part of the church, you're in that. He regards your birth and mine as His reward. Offered up as a love gift to the Father and the Father to the Son. And now we're part of this love circle, this love triangle (laughs) for eternity. All because of Jesus. Somebody asked a pastor one time of old. I've heard two people be credited with this. Two great pastors. So I'll just use it generically. He said, Pastor, you're always preaching. Constantly. Over and over again. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. Why do you do that? And he said, because you must be born again. There's no plan B. There's no plan B. How cruel it would be of God to look at His Son and say, you know, through the suffering that I have ordained for you to endure in this pain of the cross, I'm going to lay all the sins of the world on you. I'm going to credit you with it. And I'm going to take your suffering in the place of people who deserve it. And I'm going to use your suffering to cleanse them and give them brand new life for eternity. Or, just try hard. Take your pick. That made the cross the most cruel, senseless, horrible act of, the, of, the, of history. There is no other way. And we should not marvel that there's one way. 
we should marvel over the fact that there is a way. That God made a way because He didn't have to do it. But He did. Little wonder we need to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Little wonder that... And I'm going to tell you, can I ask you a question? It's this bears asking. And we're going to talk about this. Marks of the new birth. There are two things that just from this text rise prominently out of this text. Must be born again. How do you know? How do you know that you're born again? We're going to get there, God willing. We're taking our time through this text for obvious, I hope, reasons. Because this is Jesus Himself speaking the greatest truth and the only truth that everybody needs to hear. You must be born again. What are the marks of new birth? I'm going to ask you something. If you claim to be saved and your life has not changed, you are not 